Thank you, John and Daniel and Peter and Rachel, for bringing the scriptures to life for us this morning. Today, we begin a three-week sermon series on Jesus is Lord. I don't know, it's such a well-worn phrase in Christian tradition that we may not even stop to think about what it means very often. And in fact, for some of us, it may even sound a bit trite. But what I'd like for us during the next three weeks is to reflect together on its meaning for us. I mean, what does it really say? What does it really mean to claim that Jesus is Lord? And what would it mean for us to live as if it were true? How would it shape how we think about ourselves and our relationship with God and our neighbor? How would it shape the values and the priorities that determine how we invest our time and energy, our skills, and our financial resources? How would it affect how we see and how we relate to our nation and to our larger world? These are important questions for those of us who believe that faith is about more than well-worn words. They ask us to consider who or what do we give ourselves to? In whom do we trust? To whom do we give our ultimate allegiance, our ultimate loyalty? In other words, who is our leader? Who is our Lord? Is it Jesus? Allegiance to God and to God alone is a core theme that runs through the whole Bible, beginning in Genesis with the creation of the world, all the way through Revelation and the victory of the Lamb. We heard this call to allegiance repeated over and over again in our reading from Isaiah 45. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. These words brought to mind other words from Deuteronomy. Maybe you'll remember these too. Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Jesus himself quoted these verses, and he defended himself with these verses as Satan tempted him to put his allegiance elsewhere. Even though the call to loyalty and allegiance to God and to God alone comes very clearly to the people of Israel over and over again, they seem to struggle with it every step of the way. They were tempted to worship. They were tempted to give their praise and their loyalty to the gods of the surrounding nations and to their own leaders and kings and to their own religious institutions. At the time of Jesus and into the years when the early church was born and growing and spreading, the struggle continued as pressure around Christians mounted to worship at the feet of the Roman emperor. By then... The entire Mediterranean world, except for obstinate Christians and Jews, worshipped the emperor as a god. Now, it wasn't always this way. Early on in the Roman Empire, emperors were just emperors, not gods. But then, during the reign of Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor who was ruling during the time that Jesus was born, 
a movement sprang up and grew within conquered territories. This is within territories that had been conquered by Rome to worship Caesar as, as a god. And that sound, sounded curious to me when I read about that. But you see, it happens that when Caesar Augustus succeeded in uniting and pacifying most of the known world, it seemed to many who had been living in chaos, chaos and turmoil and destruction, it seemed to many to be a divine achievement. And they were ready to worship Caesar as a god. And so in 29 BC, several decades before Jesus was born, Caesar Augustus authorized the construction of the first temples designed for emperor worship. And in these temples, there were priests. Caesar was worshipped as gods, and these priests officiated at ceremonies to honor him. And the Roman confession of faith became, Caesar is Lord. Now, for early Christians, the pressure to adopt this confession of faith was immense. Now, in theory, they didn't need to give up worshiping their God, the God of Jesus Christ. After all, there were many other gods worshipped alongside Caesar. But they did need to affirm that out of all gods, Caesar, bearer of good news and glad tidings to the world, and this, this, these words were used, bearer of good news and glad tidings to the world, was Lord alone. And that loyalty and allegiance to Caesar took priority over every other claim. Lack of compliance could and sometimes did mean death. Now, I imagine that most of us are grateful that we live in a day and age when we're not obligated to participate in emperor worship. For all practical purposes, at least in the Western world, emperor worship no longer exists. We are way beyond that, right? One would think so, but I wonder, and maybe you do too, perhaps we're closer to it than we think. J. Nelson Crable in his book, Apocalypse and Allegiance, Worship, Politics, and Devotion in the Book of Revelation puts it like this. While no Western nation has outright emperor worship today, we do have political, military, and economic powers to which millions give unquestioned allegiance. Now, this is a strong statement, but I'm convinced that it's true. And here's why. We naturally take on the values and assumptions that are embedded in the culture around us. And here are a few of them. Might makes right. Violence is often necessary in order to stamp out evil in this world. More, not less. Our lives are given meaning by what we possess and consume. So the more, the better. Freedom at all cost. We are not only willing to die for freedom, we are willing to kill for freedom. Personal responsibility, if I feel like it, and if it suits my best interests. Because in the end, 
It's really all about me. In our North American culture, we are immersed in these values. We absorb them, and we come to believe that they are true. We allow them to shape the way we see our world and the way we interact with the world. And to the extent that we allow them to have this kind of power over us, over our thinking, over our feeling, over our acting, they become gods that we worship. Gods to whom we may even give our loyalty and our allegiance. The most dangerous part of this process is that we don't often recognize that it's happening. It's like the proverbial frog in the pot of water. And here, I'm not recommending that any of us try this. But I am told that if a frog is dropped into a pot of boiling water, it will immediately jump out, immediately jump out to save its life. But if a frog is placed in a pot of cool water and the water is gradually heated, the frog won't detect what is happening and it will stay in and it will die as it becomes overheated. Clearly, there is danger in our being drawn, being drawn without our conscious consent into allegiances that move us toward death rather than life. In the face of this danger, first century Christians had a very, very clear and unequivocal response, and it was simply this. Jesus is Lord. It's the earliest Christian confession of faith that we heard in Philippians 2. At the name of Jesus, let every knee bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not only was it a confession of faith, it was a highly, highly charged political statement. In a context where Caesar is declared to be Lord, early Christians dared to say, and it was a very bold and daring thing to say, no. Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. The consequence of this radical loyalty and allegiance to Jesus was very costly. As I mentioned earlier, it resulted in persecution and it resulted in death. Fully aware of this cost, early Christians took their faith formation very seriously. For example, preparation for baptism was a three-year process. Not an eight-week process, but a three-year process meant to strengthen and prepare believers to face the very real challenges and the very real persecution that likely lay ahead. They also took their worship life very seriously. They gathered for worship in people's homes. Men and women, rich and poor, slaves and free altogether, which was a very radical thing for that time. And whenever they gathered, they shared the Lord's Supper, remembering and celebrating the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, as well as the living presence of the risen Christ with them then and there.
Worship was also a very important time for these Christians to reaffirm together as a body their love and their loyalty for Jesus, their Lord, and to recommit themselves to his ways. These practices of faith formation and worship helped to grow and shape their ongoing allegiance to Jesus. Today, over 2,000 years later, our reality is very different from that of the first century church. But the pressure to worship other gods, to allow someone or something other than God to be Lord of our lives, that's very, very real. So, what are we to do? And I'm going to say a little bit about what we can do, but in a little roundabout way. So just bear with me here. In January, I attended Pastor's Week at Associated Mennonite Biblical Seminary. The focus of this week was the book of Revelation, and I wasn't sure exactly what I would be getting into. But it turned out to be very, very good. And I really, really appreciated the emphasis on the vivid visions of Revelation being connected, very connected, to what the churches in Asia Minor were experiencing in that very time and in that very place in the midst of empire, in the midst of the Roman Empire. Since then, I've done some more reading, and I found Nelson Crable's book on Revelation to be very helpful, and maybe it would be really great someday to have that as a Sunday school elective. I think that it's something that would interest many of us. But he points out that the word revelation in Greek means unveiling. And in the book of Revelation, the author, John, unveils the Roman Empire, showing it to have become a violent beast's beast that usurps devotion belonging to God. At the same time, Revelation unveils the nature of divine love made known by the lamb that was slain. John's clear message all throughout the book of Revelation is that humankind must choose between allegiance to the beast and allegiance to the lamb. Now, For those choosing allegiance to the lamb, John, through his visions, shows the way for them to ground themselves there. And that is through worship. Revelation is filled with scene after scene of worship. It is actually a book of worship. Scenes like the one that we heard read this morning from Revelation 5 with myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of angels and creatures and elders singing with full voice, worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing forever and ever. Now, this is clearly not tame worship. It is wild and extravagant worship. And perhaps most importantly, it is subversive worship. It is subversive because it gives honor and glory and praise to Jesus, the lamb that was slain, to Jesus who conquers sin and evil 
and the powers of death in our world, not through military might, nor through violence, nor through coercion, but through costly, self-emptying love. And it is subversive because it declares that Jesus, the lamb that was slain, and not Caesar, not any other power in this world, is Lord and King and is alone worthy of our worship. If we take this vision of Revelation seriously, we have our work cut out for us on Sunday mornings when we gather together for worship. This is not just a feel-good time to sing familiar hymns and connect with our friends, although I will say that I fully believe that God is present as we do that. Worship, in the words of Nelson Crable, is a time to recalibrate our spiritual orientation. I really like that phrase. Worship is a time to recalibrate our spiritual orientation. It's a time to give honor and praise to the God of Jesus Christ. It's a time to realign ourselves with the constitution of the kingdom of God as taught and modeled by Jesus. It's a time to remember and to affirm that Jesus and that not any other power in this world is Lord. We need this kind of worship if we hope to grow in our allegiance to Jesus. And we need to do it together. We need to be in this together. Because truth be told, when we claim and follow Jesus as Lord, we will be swimming upstream against some pretty strong currents. Being part of a community of faith joined in this kind of worship helps us know that, yes, we may be swimming upstream, but we're not swimming alone. Together, as we worship, as we support and encourage each other, we find spiritual and emotional resources to resist the powers of death in our world. We find renewed strength to follow the Lamb. I don't know about you, but that's something that I need. I need the support of a faith community to encourage me and following Jesus as my leader and my Lord in the face of so many other allegiances that are calling for my attention and for my loyalty. So in that spirit of committing ourselves together to follow Jesus as our Lord, I'm wondering if you would join me in a pledging allegiance to Jesus. It's found in the bulletin printed there. And I don't mean to sound corny here, but if you feel so led, and if you find it helpful, feel free to put your hand over your heart as a sign of your commitment. Let's read together. I pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ and to God's kingdom for which he died, one spirit-led people the world over, indivisible, with love and justice for all. Amen.